Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome everybody to this event. We're having a conversation that forms part of the larger conference about China's rise and Asia's responses. This is a conference that's co-organized. It's really led by the University of Helsinki and NACS, the Nordic Association for China Studies with collaboration from the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and our partners, NIST Council. So as some of you know, we have about 25 partners who work together across the Nordic region to promote Asian studies. And we have a conference every year. And this is our 2021 conference. But let me just say, we have a great panel of people here. I'm Duncan McCargo. I'm director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a political science professor at the University of Copenhagen. I'm joined by my nearest colleague, Petra Destova. Petra, do you want to say hello? Hi, I'm Petra Destova. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I work primarily on Thailand at the moment and mostly related to issues like nation branding and electoral governance. So that's my focus Great. Thanks a lot, Petra. So we're going to have three other contributors, one of whom, Sebastian Strangio, who's the Southeast Asia editor of The Diplomat, is going to join us only virtually in a recorded format shortly. We're also very privileged to have with us Murray Hibbert, who I've known for many years, originally in his former identity as a correspondent with Far East Economic Review. I think he reported from at least four different Southeast Asian countries over the years, and latterly in his incarnation at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he's a senior associate of the Southeast Asia program. Welcome to the NNC conference, Murray. And last but not least, we're also joined by Wasanao Wang Surawat, who I've also known for quite a long time. She's an associate professor of history at Chulalongkorn University and has written widely on Chinese diasporas and Southeast Asia and is perhaps best known for her monograph, The Crown and the Capitalists, Ethnic Chinese and the Founding of the Thai Nation, which was published by University of Washington Press in 2019. Wasanao, welcome to the NNC conference. But let's kick off with Sebastian Strangio. He's just published a very exciting book about the relationship between Southeast Asia and China, which is called In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century, Yale University Press 2020. And this is a very topical book in terms of the theme of this conference about China's rise and Asia's response. Thanks for having me, Duncan. Okay, at this point, I'm going to hand over to Petra to get things going. Thanks, Duncan. Well, thanks again, Sebastian. First of all, congratulations on your book. And second, what I would like to say that this is a highly readable book, so it's a real fun to read. And I think it will be enjoyed by people both within and outside of academia. So first of all, perhaps for those who haven't had a chance to read your book yet, I would like to ask you to maybe give us a brief idea of what this book is about and how did you personally get interested in this topic of China's rise and Southeast Asia's response? Well, I first came in contact with this issue during the eight years that I spent living and working as a journalist in Cambodia. I mean, many of our listeners will know that in recent years, Prime Minister Hun Sen's Cambodia has become sort of uh, emblematic of the rise of Chinese influence in Southeast Asia. It's spoken of as a Chinese client state. And certainly in the time that I spent there, the physical presence, Chinese investment presence, investment of Chinese expatriates and business people and tourists grew exponentially, and it has continued to do so since I left the country in 2016. And I first became interested in seeing how this influx of Chinese capital and money and people and ideas was affecting the country. Cambodia offered an interesting angle, I think, on the question of China's growing power. Obviously, there, like I said, there was the physical aspects of it, bridges that were being built with Belt and Road Initiative money, highways, real estate developments, and so forth. But there was also an interesting political effect in that Cambodia, which had once been the subject of such a concerted democracy-building efforts on the part of Western governments, was now allowed, because of Chinese largesse, to revert to sort of a more authoritarian system of government. And so I came to see that Cambodia reflected in important ways wider international developments. And from there, I sort of became interested in seeing how these economic, political, ideological factors were playing out in other parts of Southeast Asia. And so I traveled around and wherever I went on a reporting trip, I would ask people, 
what their views were of China and sort of try and gather threads that I brought together in this book. The book covers nine of the Southeast Asian countries, and I really try to provide a journalistic picture of each nation's relationship with China, the historical patterns of interaction between these nations and their pre-colonial predecessors with China and the various Chinese dynasties and empires, and how that is shaping their responses to China's growing power in the present. And so I proceed country by country. I visited each of the countries that I speak about in the book, and I try to really tell their story or tell the story of their relationship with China and what it might mean sort of in the years to come. Yeah, I remember reading some of very interesting anecdotes that you had, and particularly the one in Cambodia, they were talking about it. I remember, I think it was Siena World that you were saying, it was like a sleepy town first, and then a few years afterwards, when you came back, it had these like hyper-modern buildings and full of Chinese tourists and all these kind of things. So, so really, it is a very tangible change that you could map out and you could see, so it's really interesting. But if we think about Southeast Asia as a region, why does it matter so much to China? I mean, the simple answer to that question is proximity. Southeast Asia is close to China, and as such, is always going to be important to it to a certain extent. Specifically, Southeast Asia is important in the context of China's neighborhood relations. If you imagine looking out at Asia from Beijing, you're presented with a fairly claustrophobic picture. U.S. treaty allies off China's east coast, Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines, You have uh, India and Russia, which are nuclear powers and rivals of China, occupying other important stretches of China's frontier. And then you have the U.S. Navy forward deployed in the Western Pacific. And so from the perspective of Chinese strategists, I think that Southeast Asia enjoys a particular prominence as a region in which China can break through this sort of perceived chain of encirclement that is being engineered by the United States, which Chinese strategists have long feared. The relatively fragmented region of small nations, and there's no incumbent great power there. And there's also the economic, trade, historical ties to China, which make the region fairly receptive to Chinese influence. On top of that, you have to add the economic importance of the region. I mean, really, Southeast Asia stands between China and sources of Middle Eastern crude oil. It also stands between China and a certain percentage of the world market. The, the sea lanes of communication that bear Chinese oil imports and its exports of manufactured goods pass through the South China Sea. They pass through the Straits of Malacca and through other important seaways that thread through Southeast Asia. This also conditions the importance of mainland Southeast Asia to China as a potential overland corridor to the Indian Ocean. So this is sort of lies at the core of China's interest in Myanmar, for instance. Yeah, you've mentioned your starting point with Cambodia, and some people will be familiar with your other book and your new book, Hansen's Cambodia, in a new edition called Cambodia with a colon and, and some other words. That's clearly a very important starting point for you in terms of understanding the relationship between China and Southeast Asia. Although, funnily enough, we don't have a whole chapter on Cambodia in the book, to my <laughs> slight disappointment. For me, I suppose there was a bit of an aha moment when I was living in Thailand in 2012, and we had this extraordinary ASEAN meeting which did not result in the normal ASEAN statement and extensive mm. speculation that the Chinese government had in some way, let's just say, lent on the Cambodians to dodge the bullet of confronting controversial points about the South China Sea's dispute. Could you say something about that moment? Was that a revelatory moment or is this just something that people have latched onto? It did mark a sort of threshold. I mean, as you said, this is the first time in the history of ASEAN summits where they had not issued their joint communique. You know, even though these communiques are often very anodyne, mm -hmm. very blandly worded, representing, of course, the lowest common denominator of consensus within the grouping, the fact that it couldn't even reach a lowest common denominator of consensus on this question was quite remarkable. And I remember at the time, I didn't report that summit in person, but the commentary at the time, there was a lot of surprise and shock about what had happened. And I think afterwards, some shuttle diplomacy enabled ASEAN to cobble together a consensus. But it kind of demonstrated that when ASEAN's unity poses any sort of threat to greater powers outside, in this case, China, they're not hesitant to exercise what power they have to prevent that from happening. In some ways, something more notable happened later that year at the summit that was held in November, I believe it was, because Cambodia was hosting that year, and there was the big summit in Phnom Penh. And, you know, this was U.S. President Barack Obama visited, the first sitting U.S. president to visit Cambodia ever, I believe. And on the what they call the Peace Palace, which is one of the main government buildings where dignitaries are welcomed by the prime minister and senior officials, 
there were two big banners that read, long live the People's Republic of China. And this was the U.S. The motorcade from the airport right. bearing President Obama was would have driven right past these signs. And I think that sort of signified to me a slight shifting of the guard in terms of the point at which China's influence in Cambodia hit a tipping point. And it's not surprising that in the decades since then, we've seen the Cambodian government with the knowledge of Chinese support and backing, settling old scores with a lot of its political enemies and really abrogating the political sediment that created Cambodia's democratic system as imperfect as it's always been in the early 1990s. I think this question sort of nicely ties into some of the other questions that we would like to ask you. But what's quite interesting, and you've already touched upon, there isn't really a simple way of approaching this relationship between Southeast Asia and China, because as you already said, there is a huge level of diversity within the region itself. And as you already indicated with Cambodia, different countries obviously have different way of having their relationship with China, and there's a great deal of complexity. So could you maybe tell us a little bit more towards this dynamics of the Southeast Asia relationship with China and how do these countries respond to China's rising influence? I mean, obviously, South China Sea, as you already alluded to, is a, is a big issue, especially among certain countries when it comes to their relationship. But there are other things that you also mentioned in your book. Well, as you say, each country has its own unique set of relationships with China based around geography, historical patterns of immigration, patterns of encounter with Chinese power and the people of China. I would say that the, you know, the overarching similarity, the thing that binds these various threads together is the theme of proximity. This makes China something that the region can't ignore or escape from. It makes the reality of living near China something that these countries all have to manage in some way or another. Now, some countries are facing more direct challenges from growing Chinese power than others. Countries that have claims in the South China Sea are experiencing the hard edge of China's maritime, its growing maritime power. They've come face to face with it in a very direct way. The Vietnamese also have experienced this crushing burden of proximity to China, something that's not at all new and has conditioned Vietnamese history and the development of Vietnamese nationalism for a very long time. But within that, that broad frame of proximity, there are a lot of differences in how specific nations have dealt with China. For some, you know, the most salient factor is the presence of large ethnic Chinese diasporas in these Southeast Asian countries and the nature of their relationship with the Chinese state. This is something that's a particularly fraught issue in, say, Indonesia. It's also an important issue in Malaysia and conditions to a certain extent Singapore's approach to China. The fear of being seen as a Chinese city-state in a Malay-majority Muslim sea. And for that reason, of course, Singapore didn't recognize China until the rest of ASEAN had already done so. And for other countries, for Vietnam, its relations are characterized by a tense dialectic between sort of emulating China and borrowing from China and resisting its power. For smaller developing nations, Cambodia and Laos are probably two of the most interesting examples. China is seen in a slightly more benign light, at least by those in power. In Cambodia's case, and to a certain extent Thailand's, the lack of a shared border and large flows of historical patterns of migration and fairly deep assimilation of Chinese migrants in a way that's notably different from Indonesia and Malaysia has fostered a fairly benevolent view of Chinese power. But that, of course, is being challenged by the sorts of investments you mentioned in Sihanoukville, these ugly gambling developments that are creating backlash within Cambodia. And so it's hard to generalize. Each nation sort of has its own patterns of historical interaction with China. Again, sort of the purpose of my book is to try and tease out some of these things and provide some kind of an indication as to where relations are going to go as China's power continues to grow. So out of these nine Southeast Asian countries that you analyze in your book, which one would you say, I mean, if, if at all possible, has the most complex relationship with China? I think without a doubt, Vietnam. I mean, here's a country that faces, uniquely faces China's rising power, not just on its land border, through which Chinese invading armies have moved for centuries, but also at sea. It also bears a large proportion of the downstream effects of the hydropower dams that China has developed on the upper Mekong River. The Mekong Delta in southern Vietnam, a hugely important agricultural region for Vietnam, is witnessing some severe problems because of the development of these dams. And Vietnam has no ability to develop hydropower of its own on the Mekong, given the fact that it's, it's very flat and broad at that point. So it's gotten all of the costs and none of the benefits. And so it's sort of stuck in this pincer. But at the same time, you know, the complexity is heightened by what I talked about before, this sense of being bound to China in this sort of really fraught and anguished way. It has experienced more than any other Southeast Asian nation and people 
the hard edge of Chinese power, invasions, subjugation, and annexation by various Chinese dynasties. By the same token, it has absorbed a huge amount from China, for everything from the writing system to military technologies, moral philosophies, forms of social structure. All of these things have been gradually assimilated. And they are the very tools that in some ways have given Vietnam the ability to defend its independence from China. And then you add on top of that as well, the fact that both nations are governed by communist parties that have historical links that go back many decades, and that there's a very strong shared interest between these two communist parties as to their continued survival in a post-communist world. The fact that that most of the Vietnamese population is stridently anti-Chinese and very suspicious of China, and that the nationalist tradition in Vietnam is very suspicious of China, adds a further tension to the position that the country's government finds itself in. I would say that the Philippines also has a fairly complex relationship, being both a U.S. treaty ally and a claimant in the South China Sea. I mean, it's really stuck in a very uncomfortable position between the sort of dueling superpowers that we see in the region right now. Well, dueling superpowers. <laughs> I was living in the U.S., based most of my time in the U.S. for a number of years until moving to Copenhagen. And every time I'd give a public talk about Southeast Asian politics, often about domestic Thai politics, actually, I would get these questions. It was very clear that m- many people in the audience were reading what was going on in Thailand and elsewhere in Southeast Asia entirely through the lens of a zero-sum game of influence between the United States and China. How useful do you find this idea that understanding Southeast Asia through this perspective of superpower competition really explains what's going on there? You know, you hear this complaint often from analysts and observers of African politics as well, that that American engagement with the region is purely taking place on the because of concerns about encroaching Chinese influence. And I think that this, to some extent, reflects, again, the sort of differential proximity of the two powers. Southeast Asia is a region that China cannot help but be involved in. It is some of the nation's border China. This is China's neighborhood. This is sort of the equivalent of the Caribbean and Central America for the United States. Whereas the U.S. has to make sort of an active effort to engage and be forward deployed. It's a global military power. It's got commitments in every part of the globe. Just seeing the recent flare-up in the Israel-Palestine conflict and the fact that the U.S. immediately had to get involved in trying to resolve this, this will continue to distract American attention. And I think it's quite notable that the Biden administration has its first steps of engagement with the Asia Pacific have been with the Quad powers, with Japan, India, and Australia, rather than with the nations of Southeast Asia. Whereas Chinese diplomats have, over the past year, have the Chinese foreign minister has been to every nation in Southeast Asia, bar Vietnam. And the Chinese are about to hold another summit in Chongqing, which will take place, I think, next week. The Chinese are really trying to send the message that proximity makes China an inevitable partner and an enduring partner, one that is not going to get distracted and walk off in another direction. And the challenge for the United States, I think, is to engage with Southeast Asia in a way that takes into account Southeast Asian needs and desires rather than simply doing it to counter China. I think that in Southeast Asia, there's not governments don't have much appetite for a global superpower competition, especially one that's framed, as it so often is in Washington nowadays, as a sort of battle between freedom and authoritarianism. And this is something that it does have some currency in Southeast Asia, but I would say that not at the government level. This is something that upsets the careful balance that Southeast Asia has been able to maintain for so long. Right. In your book, you talk about the toxicity of some of these kinds of lines of discussion and conversation. Yeah. If we look at the current period with the global coronavirus pandemic, and I know that you actually analyze this a little bit in your conclusion, How has this situation altered the dynamics of this relationship between Southeast Asia and China? I think that it's underscored some of the tendencies we see in relations between China and Southeast Asia. I mean, it's really, it's emphasized the fact of, again, a proximity, the fact that China is close by. That was demonstrated in the first instance by the fact that the first case outside of China was detected in Thailand, where I was living at the time. I distinctly remember everybody all of a sudden putting on the mall, putting on face masks, and that wasn't just for the air pollution. And that was my first instance that sense that this coronavirus was something serious. But because of the intertwining of Southeast Asian economies with China, and the heavy dependence on trade with China, investment from China, China is going to be central to the region's economic recovery. And because the economic downturns often bring political upheavals in their wake, as we saw with the 97 Asian financial crash, there's a very good chance that China will be central to the region's recovery. And so this has made it more difficult in some instances for Southeast Asian governments to say no to China, to stand up to it. And it sort of underscored that sense of tension that exists at the heart of the relationship between the two regions. Governments in Southeast Asia are concerned about the origins of COVID and the initial missteps that allowed it to escape Wuhan and to begin its deadly migration around the globe. 
there's a tendency in the US, or there was at the time, to view these Chinese missteps as somehow sort of unique to its authoritarian system. And people were drawing some sort of larger lesson about the fragility of the Chinese system, and they really wanted to make a point. In Southeast Asia, I think there's concerns about how this happened, but Southeast Asians are very pragmatic. I think there's also a sense of that the region is trying to grapple with how to move forward and solve this problem. China has been very assiduous in promising COVID vaccines for the region, mask diplomacy in its early stages. The U.S. has also done quite a lot on this front as well, more than is generally recognized. But I think that the fact that China is so close, it means that it's well, a lot of these arrangements have been brokered very quickly and have been given a lot of publicity. And I think that the broader question of economic recovery. I mean, I think that, you know, every government in the region recognizes that China's recovery is good for the region and that ultimately the relationship between the two will be crucial in in overcoming this recession. Indeed. Obviously, looking at this complex situation, what would you see? And I understand that I'm inviting you for a degree of speculation here, but what is in store for the future relationship between Southeast Asia and China? Let's look at the more long-term prospects. Well, a lot depends on the United States and China and their relationship and how they manage the competition, which seems inevitable now. Well, if the two powers move toward open conflict, then it's going to put Southeast Asian nations in a very difficult position. The one thing that could force them to make a snap decision about aligning with one power or another could be the outbreak of war between them. If the Chinese government were to invade Taiwan or there would be some sort of flare up in the South China Sea, this would pose the region with very unenviable decision. Short of that, I think that we're going to see sort of current dynamics continuing to play out, I think, along probably a heightened degree of tension. I think that the U.S. and China are going to be locked into some sort of competitive dynamic for the foreseeable future, and that Southeast Asian nations will continue to do what they can to maintain a degree of strategic autonomy in both directions, both autonomy from overbearing Chinese demands, but also sort of desire not to be conscripted into a sort of global ideological struggle against authoritarianism. I think Southeast Asians, again, are much more pragmatic in how they view China. They don't carry a lot of the liberal suppositions that the American policymaking class tends to adhere to. And so there's sort of a, a bit of tension and resistance there. And I think that the Singaporeans have done quite well at speaking to both China and the United States and really clarifying Southeast Asia's position between them, which is that they, you know, the region doesn't want war. It wants to maintain good relations with both. It wants to benefit from economic ties to China, but also benefit from the forward deployed security presence of the United States, which will help to counterbalance China's growing strategic weight. And so whether Southeast Asia can have its cake and eat it too indefinitely is going to be, remains to be seen. I think that the balancing act that every nation in the region is going to be forced to make is going to become more and more difficult, more and more fraught, and the stakes are going to be higher as time goes by. But again, a lot depends on decisions that are made in Beijing and Washington as to the scope of and the trajectory of the competition between these two powers. Indeed. And what I quite like as well, that comes through your book in numerous sections as well, is that when we talk about this relationship, and, and you already indicated that, it's not just a relationship between Southeast Asian countries on the whole, but there is a nuance between the government level response and people's level response, which we could see recently with the rise of the military alliance, for instance really based on strong sort of popular anti-Chinese attitudes and attitudes against authoritarianism per se. So I think that kind of throw an interesting dimension to the mix as well for the future. Certainly. Yeah, that's something that's very much something to watch. Great. Yeah, I can easily imagine now another book, which is called something like Forced to Choose. <laughs> yeah, right. An, an article well, along those lines with a question mark at the end of the title. Yes, well, you know, things are moving in that direction, unfortunately, but yeah, we'll see what happens. Thanks very much, Sebastian, for joining us today to talk to us about your book, In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century, out from Yale University Press. And we hope lots of our conference participants and viewers will go off and read that book. It's a fabulous analysis and summary of all these issues with a wide-ranging overview of the region, which is really nicely done. Thanks so much. Now we're going to do something similar and slightly different again and ask Murray to respond to a few questions that Petra will start off. So Petra, please take things away. Thanks, Duncan. So once again, before I start, I would like to say that this is a really, really interesting book and also a highly readable book. And in some ways, I mean, unlike Sebastian's book, this book is much longer and has more detailed uh, analysis and also tackles some of the countries that are not covered in Sebastian's book. So I'm pretty sure that there is enough scope for us to discuss them both in great detail. 
So this might sound like a very typical question when somebody writes a book, but I'm going to ask it nevertheless, because I think it's a very interesting question. And given the way how you open your book, I think it's definitely worth asking. But could you tell us how you became interested in this topic of China's influence in Southeast Asia? So where, when and where was the seed first planted? Wow. So I lived there a long time, so I don't remember the exact moment, but you referred to as one of the opening scenes in the book where I referred to as I was not a journalist yet. I was an NGO person. I was based in Laos and I was in Vietnam shortly after the Chinese invasion and the Vietnamese and woke me up in the middle of the night one day and said, uh, do you want to go to Lang Son, which is one of the cities that China attacked and leveled. And I guess being an only an NGO person at that time who hadn't really studied Asia, that was uh, except for being on the ground. I think that was a wake up call. And then, you know, that there's something going on. Later, I came back as a journalist initially in Thailand and was you know, obviously experiencing China's increased influence particularly after China had opened the border and allowed trading. And so you started to see Chinese goods pouring into the markets and, and some Chinese investors coming. Then I moved to Vietnam and there I became very aware of the tensions in the South China Sea and watched dynamics such as China taking Johnson South Reef from the Vietnamese, one of the islands in the Spratlys, and brutally gunning down 70, I believe it was, sailors. And then later I moved to Malaysia and Singapore and also saw the growing influence of China. And I, like Sebastian, I see uh, China's influence in the region as quite mixed. You know, the countries view China as providing a lot of hope and a lot of optimism about economic development. But some of them, especially those that are along the lower Mekong and those that have disputes with China in the South China Sea, seeing, seeing China's sharper tip of its arrow and feeling some of the challenges that China could provide going forward. Definitely. As you say, there is a great level of complexity to these relations, and, and you do discuss them in great lengths throughout your chapters. But I was wondering, would you say that Chinese influence in the region could perhaps be emboldening some of Southeast Asian's authoritarian regimes? And I think, obviously, you know, there are discussions about Cambodia's closeness to China. So would you say, is this something that we can talk about more generally, that China's influence could be empowering the, the Southeast Asia strongmen to say? Well, I think that's very much the case. Yes, as you discussed with Sebastian, and he provided some answers, it obviously gave Hung Sen more leeway to, after the democratic experiment that the UN was involved in the international community, Hung Sen was clearly marching toward being more authoritarian. And arresting opposition people, journalists, NGO people, and China gave him backing. At one point, Hung Sen kicks out, I can't remember, about uh, 20 or 30 Uyghurs who had come across Southeast Asia to Cambodia. And at the request of China, the U.S. then cuts off, I think it was 12 or 20 military trucks And the Chinese immediately agreed to supply the, those military trucks, and the rest is history. It's been going that way really ever since, and especially ahead of the 2018 elections, when Hong Sun really cracked down against the opposition and the media. But then, you know, when Thailand had a coup in 2014, the U.S. criticized the coup, imposed some low-level sanctions, cut off some aid, some military aid for trainees and U.S. military schools, those kinds of things. Thailand very quickly sent in rafts of business delegations, other delegations. You followed them in the media. It was quite overwhelming to see how big those sudden onslaught became. And China was clearly sending a signal that we're not going to judge you for your political system like the United States. And then uh, most recently, we've seen it now in the military coup in Myanmar that happened February 1st. The US, the EU, the UK, a lot of countries imposed sanctions 
against the military junta, uh, the leaders, their companies, and the international, the Western democracies tried to take Myanmar to the UN, uh, the Security Council and various other bodies. And China and Russia constantly defended Myanmar and blocked any moves. And so, you know, those are three examples in the last decade or so where China has helped, made it easier for authoritarian leaders to crack down on their population and that they don't face any of the harsh measures the U.S. might have wanted to impose. I would like to say something in general first, because I feel like I would like to tell our listeners that if you see the title of the books and the opening statement and where we've come so far, you might get the impression that, you know, these are two books that talk about the same thing. But actually, I've read both of the books, and I would say that they are very different, and they're very good reads, both of them. And one thing that is very interesting that Sebastian's book, In the Dragon's Shadow, gives a very neat bird's eye view, long-term history, goes all the way back to the Chinese dynasties and the colonial period, and gives this general image of the relations between Southeast Asia and China through the time up to the present, which gives this overall view, which is very useful and very interesting. But at the same time, it's, there's a danger from that perspective to get the impression that China is a constant or, or China has been the same, or you don't see the, the changes in China very clearly in that kind of narrative. And this is how I find your book differs from that structure quite a bit, Murray, in that I actually appreciate a lot the way you start your book very much in the Cold War, or the world getting out of the Cold War, sort of the tail end of the Cold War. And I feel that your narrative of the relations between China and Southeast Asia, a very important theme is that we are not in the Cold War anymore. And there is something that changed a lot, right? And of course, I come from a background of studying China itself. And I know that there's a huge change of China from during the Cold War, Maoist China, and reform China, Deng Xiaoping and everyone after him, right? So there's a huge change that I get the sense that what you present in your book, there's a theme that suggests that what is happening in the 21st century is something that has not happened before. And this is very different world from where it was in the Cold War. And in that sense, I actually get a clear sense of how not only Southeast Asia has changed so much in its relations with the world, with the US, with China, but China also changed quite a bit as well. And since there's so much what I call Cold War rhetoric going on, dual superpower and all that, that Duncan also mentioned during his conversation with Sebastian, if you can talk a bit about how this 21st century struggle, this cyber age struggle that is happening in Southeast Asia and the South China Sea and the way it relates to Beijing, how this is different from the Cold War, how this is different from anything we've ever seen before. Yeah, boy, that's a bit of a big question. <laughs> One could write a book about that quite easily. So China does use all kinds of vehicles now to engage these countries that it didn't use before. Obviously, there's soft power is a huge vehicle of China in the current age. Pre-COVID, it invited a lot of students to come. Just that tens of thousands of students came from Southeast Asia. Many of them would have preferred to go to the UK or US or Australia, but China gave them a scholarship, so that's where they went. Tourists made a huge difference. Tourists never used to come out, but now in many places, including around the Royal Palace in Thailand, you have signs in Chinese that used to be in English. So it's clear. And people... They have frustrations, obviously, with the way some Chinese behave and some of the pagodas, etc. But they do appreciate China playing a greater role in spending. That's also been hit really hard, especially in Thailand, because it gets so much of its GDP from tourism during COVID. It's really been hammered. Then China is also playing a bigger role in infrastructure, in the Belt and Road, not that that's gone smoothly in many countries. It's China has had a bit of a battle. But one thing that's very fascinating to me, and we could go through some of the challenges, but when China is faced with tiny Laos standing up to them and saying, well, what you're proposing that we take out 
a six, seven billion dollar loan to pay for this railroad that's going to mostly benefit you, China. No, we're not going to do that. And tiny Laos, which is very weak and managed to stand up to China for five years and they changed the pattern. China in the end got some of its companies to take the lion's share of the loan and Laos only took 10% of it. They downsized the amount of land that China got on each side of the railroad, that kind of thing. And even in, in Malaysia, when they had a political change in 2018, the new old prime minister Mahathir is elected and he starts going to Beijing and talking about new style colonialism. China heard that and they did renegotiate the railroad and the costs of the railroad, the length and that kind of thing. What surprises me is that you view China as you know, a rather naive investor, a, a naive aid donor, but it's learning very quickly under the Belt and Road how to behave and how to keep the popular sentiment on its, if not on its side, at least not from opposing it. And then it's also, China is by far the biggest investor in the digital space. So it's investing in unicorns in, in Indonesia, go check and the whole bunch, the, the four or five big unicorns that have come up in Indonesia. It is much larger investor than let's say Amazon or Google or Apple. And that was a little surprising to me and that they're ready to go with Huawei despite the fact that the US declares them to be a big spying outfit for the United States. You know, but also this is the first time China has actually been so aggressive militarily in the South China Sea. In the old days, during the Cold War in 1974, it stole the Parasol Islands from the old South Vietnamese government, American-backed South Vietnamese government. But it has put a lot of pressure on Vietnam, on Malaysia, on the Philippines, not to develop oil and gas with Western or non-Chinese, non-Southeast Asian oil and gas companies. It has put a lot of pressure on Vietnam and the Philippines and Indonesia on fishing. These are our historical fishing waters, even though it's on your exclusive economic zone. We are going to send in our Coast Guard, giant Coast Guard ships that are as big as an American aircraft carrier and the maritime militia vessels. And so that's also very different in that area where it's much more aggressive in terms of showing hard or even some might call it sharp power. It's also spying a lot more. It's really hard to get at this. We know a lot more about what China's doing in New Zealand and Australia in terms of what's going on in the cyber. But there, it was interesting ahead of Vietnam hosting the APEC in 2017, when it was also going to host Donald Trump and Xi Jinping. China was all over the APEC officials was going into their computers to try to figure out what Vietnam was going to propose. And so China has many more tools. Some of the tools are quite benign and some are actually quite positive and others are rather sharp elbowed. If I might build on that question a bit, my second question is something that is, in my point of view, clearly a product of the Cold War, which is ASEAN. I mean, the founders of ASEAN were all aligned with the U.S., and ASEAN started out as a kind of like follow-up to CETO or something. From my point of view, ASEAN is very mm -hmm. clearly a product of the Cold War. But ASEAN survived the Cold War. And, and now in this situation, I mean, Sebastian talked a bit about this as well. But I mean, in your book, I think we see how something that has been, I don't know, an, an apparatus of the U.S. during the Cold War is now then being manipulated by China or being influenced by China to gain access or allies or networks in Southeast Asia. Then again, we also see that China appears to be at the present a, a, a big challenge to the functioning of ASEAN. So can you tell us a bit about how you see the sort of like transformation of ASEAN from the Cold War into the post-Cold War, and how is this going to affect this struggle in the South China Sea and this struggle for influence between China and the U.S.? That's a good question. Obviously, some of the biggest changes started happening in ASEAN. Well, the Cold War ended in the early 90s, right? But beyond that, when it in the 90s admitted, in the early 2000s, admitted Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar. 
Um, suddenly, the ASEAN you described, the ASEAN Five initially, the founded ASEAN, we're no longer, because it's an organization based on unanimity, and you have to have unanimous consent before you can move ahead, it's changed it very dramatically. And, and Sebastian told the story of 2012, when Cambodia worked with China to block pressure on China from ASEAN because it had just taken Scarborough Shoal from the Philippines, major insta- place where Philippine fishermen had fished forever. It was a very important place for the Philippine Navy. They took that and China got away without being criticized by ASEAN because Cambodia stood up for it. That whole pattern has really continued. So when Vietnam, when China rather in 2014 puts a giant oil rig in the exclusive economic zone of Vietnam, it was an exploration rig rather, starts to look for oil and gas in Vietnamese and Vietnamese territory, ASEAN was very weak, could almost do nothing. And in the end, ASEAN, when the arbitral tribunal ruling went against China, Philippines after 2012 brought a case against China for what it did in Scarborough Shoal. China lost in the end, lost 95% of the ruling went against China. And yet ASEAN decided not to criticize. A few countries criticized. Singapore suggested, only suggested that maybe you ought to start living by the rule of law. And they got dinged and disciplined for a year and a half by the Chinese wouldn't talk, senior leaders wouldn't talk to Singapore uh, or visit Singapore or invite them to China. And so it's very clear. And then so they can't get agreement on the South China Sea. But Really now, the other issue is the Mekong. Sebastian referred to this, that China has built 11 dams on the upper reaches of the Mekong. It is holding back massive amounts of water. I don't know what a parallel would be in Asia, but here in the United States, we have close to Washington and Baltimore is the Chesapeake Bay. It is a giant bay. Those dams hold enough water to fill the Chesapeake Bay. When it holds that water back, it means that the Lao, Thai, Cambodian, and Vietnamese farmers are really getting hurt. There's 60 million people living along the Mekong there that make their living farming and fishing off the Mekong. So Vietnam has tried to raise this issue and in ASEAN, and it really doesn't go anywhere. Cambodia isn't sure quite what it wants to do. Thailand is very cautious, even though it doesn't like what Laos is doing and building dams in the Mekong. And then ASEAN met after the coup in Myanmar and had a five-point plan, and they were going to name an envoy, and they were going to go talk to Myanmar about how to at least partially roll back the coup and involve the democratic government that they had ousted. Well, they haven't been able to name an envoy. And last weekend, a couple of ASEAN officials and Brunei officials visited, and they got a meeting with the senior military leader, Min Aung Lang, in Naypyidaw, but couldn't, they wouldn't allow him to see anybody else. So ASEAN has pretty much been made irrelevant in this dispute, which is probably one of the most violent and traumatic incidents that's happened this year in Asia. And ASEAN should have some voice in helping calm the waters really can't do anything. It's really rippled. So I think ASEAN centrality, which it keeps talking about, is actually on a threat because I don't see how they can keep functioning if they can't come to agreement on basic issues. Okay, yeah. I mean, along these kind of lines, I guess one of the things that interests me is in the title of both books is the shadow word. And as a Southeast Asianist, I guess I'm slightly discombobulated by the notion that Southeast Asia could be under anybody's shadow. Because to me, Southeast Asia is the center of the universe. And (laughs) there's no reason at all why it would be China that would be under Southeast Asia's shadow, in my mind, just like I think Europe and the US is under Southeast Asia's shadow. My view might be a little bit extreme, but the problem with the title is very catchy. And I guess we all have to struggle with our publishers to figure out what a catchy title is for these kind of books. But what about the agency of Southeast Asia vis-a-vis China in this relationship? Who's shadowing who in this? Or is it a reciprocal shadowing or what? Well, I, like you, have lived much of my life in Southeast Asia. I'm a big champion of Southeast Asia, I think, as a Sebastian. 
I think shadow is not too strong a word. I mean, we were playing with other words that were much stronger. And you asked how these two books could come out at once. It's actually quite amazing. I knew about Sebastian's book about six months before mine came out, maybe a year, but the books were already in the publisher by then. And the titles, you both use the word shadow, as you said, but those are not the only two books. Don Emerson at Stanford has done a compendium of essays written by other people about China, Southeast Asia. And David Shambaugh, who is a China guy, has written a book about the triangular relationship between China, U.S., and Southeast Asia. And they all came out within about, oh boy, six months of each other. I do think the countries now live under Beijing's shadow. Xi Jinping has really ramped stuff up in the region. He used to be that Chiang Deng Xiaoping and other leaders would just say, we have to wait for our time. Well, Xi's time has come. And so he's putting a lot more pressure on. And when the Vietnamese were standing up to China about asking a Spanish company, Repsol, to get out of the South China Sea and stop drilling in an area off the Mekong Delta, China suddenly cuts off all pork exports. Farmers in northern Vietnam raise a lot of pigs for the domestic market, but also for the Chinese market. And suddenly they had this glut of pigs and it caused a huge problem. So they use all kinds of measures like that. When the Philippines brought the arbitral tribunal case, they cut off pineapples, mangoes, and various other exports to China. It uses these kind of tactics over and over with the neighboring countries. Often it's quite small stuff, but it does make a difference to individual farmers, individuals in the economy. So, And the way it is now treating Vietnam, Philippines, and Malaysia, all of which depend very heavily on their relatively small amounts of oil and gas, where China just won't let them develop it unless they bring Sinoc in there, one of the Chinese big oil companies, is really hurting the region. And it's funny, now you're talking about the dams, Chinese dams. China brags about how much aid it's constantly giving in developing the lower Mekong. Well, actually, the livelihoods of 60 million people is not being made up with all the hard infrastructure that China is building, most of which is invested in dams and railroads that are going to benefit China more. So I think China is becoming more assertive and it is having more of an impact. And when Singapore, Lee Sing Lung gives a speech talking about just following the rule of law, which it came right after the arbitral tribunal. So it was obvious what he was referring to, suddenly Chinese begin lobbying Singapore businessmen. You better tell your government to change its tone, because if they don't, we're going to cut off your business. And Singapore is the biggest investor in China, bar none. It used to be Thailand. U.S. has been big. Europe's been big. But it's now Singapore. So these kind of actions are starting to play hardball, I think. Petra, go ahead. Yeah. It's a question that both you and Sebastian tackle in your book, but we haven't really discussed it yet. But I think it's a very interesting question. It is a question on the role of ethnic Chinese in China's rising influence in Southeast Asia. And obviously, there is a difference between countries like Thailand, where they have been assimilated to a very large degree. But then you have a bunch of countries like Malaysia, Indonesia and Singapore, when they haven't been assimilated to such a great extent. So what is the role and how are these ethnic Chinese perceived both by China and these Southeast Asian countries? Well, you know, it's it's again, country by country, but we'll try to be simplified a little. So ethnic Chinese have obviously migrated to Southeast Asia for hundreds of years. And most of those are fairly well integrated. We'll call them the old timers, the old people who came a long time ago. And the one exception probably is Indonesia, where they are a pretty small grouping of about three, 4%. They do have a very heavy influence in the economy, which is true in all the countries. But there has been complicated forever Indonesia was one of the last countries to normalize relations with China, followed quickly by Brunei and Singapore, but it was of the big, large countries that was one of the last. Because of what happened in 1965, the Indonesians blamed China for instigating a coup and that toppled Sukarno. 
and brought Saharto, and there was a purge of a killing of lots of people, maybe up to 500,000 people, a lot of them ethnic Chinese, but others that were alleged to be communists, many of whom weren't probably. The Chinese were banned from having their own schools, their own newspapers, etc. That gradually changed toward the end of Saharto. But then when Saharto was toppled during the financial crisis, the ethnic Chinese were again targets often of protesters in Indonesia and rapes and killings happened. And then more recently, when Joko Wododo, the current president, was running for office, he already was mayor, he had an ethnic Chinese deputy. And when he ran for office, he was accused of several things. One was he was Chinese. He was actually secretly Chinese. And the other was that he was secretly Christian. And then when Ahok, his deputy, was running for being the governor after Jokowi got elected, there were huge protests, 500,000 person protests on the streets of Jakarta several times. And then he was ultimately charging him with blasphemy where he made, a, I think, a bit of a foolish comment that Muslims couldn't vote for a Christian if they were following the Quran, but it probably didn't warrant being charged with blasphemy, but he was taken out and he was put in prison and he never got elected. And now we still have protests. I'm fast forwarding and I should backtrack here a little bit in a minute, but China brings in a lot of workers for its projects, especially in some countries. And the workers in Sulawesi, one of the islands in Indonesia, after the worst of the COVID was over, a bunch of Chinese came back to work in mines in Sulawesi and in neighboring export processing zone where they were producing aluminum and other metals for export. There were big protests, students and villagers, we want those jobs. Why are you giving to the Chinese? That's a long way around of talking about one country that had a lot of problems. The other issue now is the newcomers. The newcomers have actually been coming also since Deng Xiaoping basically opened the borders. He urged people to go. Initially, they went mainly to support projects that China was doing. In recent years, they have shown up in large numbers. So if you go to northern Laos now, you see there's casinos and special economic zones that are just totally Chinese. In many cases, Lao have been displaced from their land, and the Chinese have set up plantations where they grow stuff using chemicals that are quite harmful to the soil and the water and hurting animals and people. And then they export these straight back to China. You have the same situation in northern Myanmar, where you have north of Mandalay, it is very largely ethnic Chinese, recent migrants in our lifetime. But even in cities, Sebastian talked a little bit about the casinos in Sienukville, but you have a market, several square block market in Bantian, Laos now, that is just ethnic Chinese. They just speak Chinese in the market and sell consumer goods from mainland China. In the Philippines, they run what's something called Pogo, which is online gaming. Online gaming is illegal in China. It's also illegal in the Philippines, but because the gaming happens online and then the payments are made by intermediaries along the way, Duterte allows us to keep happening. And they obviously are also getting away without paying taxes, et cetera, and coming to Manila illegally. So there is an awful lot of movement of Chinese that's still continuing. In some places in Cambodia, people I talked to, they said, well, we're just coming for like five years. But in some other places in northern Laos and northern Myanmar, they're planning to stay. Yeah. So there's an appreciation that the ethnic Chinese are talented and making money. In Cambodia, they are actually midwives between the local market and China. That's not true in other places. In Indonesia, Malaysia, they complain they have no role. Yes, this is the problem with Southeast Asia, isn't it? So many countries, and the story is different in each country. And yeah, why would anyone there right might become a Southeast Asia specialist? I've asked myself that quite a few times. One thing I felt reading the two books is that, first of all, China has a very big shadow in Southeast Asia. And you kind of get the feeling that, does everyone think that China is infallible? I mean, is China going to win everyone? Does it have unlimited resources to take over the world? It can't be so, right? It's not like that, especially when 
both you and Sebastian mentioned this Indo-Pacific alliances between Japan, the US, EU, Australia, and so on and so forth, and their influence in this region as well. Actually, I really like the way you structured the conclusion, the epilogue of your book to mention how these other factors also play into Southeast Asia as well. But I mean, in that sense, what would you say about an issue? Are we not overestimating China's influence at this point? Or is it impossible to overestimate China at this point in time? No. And you're making an excellent point there. On the Belt and Road, which Xi Jinping launched in 2012, 2013 with great hoopla. And then the Chinese came with many projects, but they have signed an awful lot of projects that have never gotten off the ground. And it's very hard to get numbers. I worked with a consulting company here in Washington, that RWR, that monitors this very closely. And from their figures, it shows that China basically hit its apex of aid around 2015, and it's been slowing down. And since then, obviously, with the COVID and China's own needs to recover and stimulate its own economy, these projects, a lot of them are going to probably not be completed, not be started, that they signed MOUs on. And I think China is also starting to hear some of what Southeast Asians are saying. I talked a little bit about some of the concerns of Laos. By 2019, when Xi Jinping hosted a conference in Beijing, the second one on the Belt and Road, he was talking differently. He said, we got to be more transparent in what we're doing. We've got to be more green, meaning less polluting. And three, we've got to address corruption. This is not acceptable, you know, that we're buying our way into all these projects with the elite. And that's really You see that all over, especially in the poor countries like Laos, Cambodia. They're just buying their way in in many cases. So it's clear that China is hearing some of the messages that they're getting. And I think the AIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank that China set up, is really trying. And I think some of the leadership has worked for the ADB and the World Bank, et cetera. And they're trying to bring in more green and transparent and labor respecting kind of regulations in these projects. So I, first of all, I don't think China's 10 feet tall and invincible. I think it has faced a number of problems, but I think part of the problem is, and I make this point at the end of my book, is if the countries in Southeast Asia didn't all go to China and the US actually too, all go individually, But if they would compare notes, for example, Malaysia is paying 4% for its East Coast rail link, 4% interest. Well, Laos and Thailand were offered 2%. Why wouldn't you compare notes and find out what China is actually doing? Why would you pay premium if you don't have to? It's crazy. Myanmar, before the coup, Aung San Suu Kyi could not figure out what to do with some of these giant projects that the military government had agreed to. Why didn't they turn to Laos and Thailand and Malaysia that had already been negotiating projects just to learn their lessons? You negotiate with China. If they would all agree, if the lower Mekong countries would all agree, China, we're really fed up that you're going to starve our farmers from rice and fishing. I think China would have to listen. But if you're all going to go off individually, little countries with 15 million people, China can ignore you. I think China isn't at 10 feet tall, but I think also ASEAN has a lot more agency, or Southeast Asia has a lot more agency if they would work together instead of against each other to try to get an advantage from China. Thanks, Mo. Yeah, it's called divide and rule, and it's a fairly well-known tactic that a a number of other powerful countries have used in the past, including (laughs) the one I myself come from. Yeah, but it's sad how it works every time, isn't it, really? Thanks a lot, Murray. We're almost at the end of our time. I'm conscious there's a lot more we could discuss. Wasna, did you want to make any final comments or discussions today? A lot of us here come from the sort of academic background, university research, journal publication and all that. And Southeast Asianists, I think, tend to be more sort of limited to one country or at most it's the Malay world. And then you look at Malaysia, Indonesia, maybe parts of the Philippines or the mainland Southeast Asia or something like that. 
And so it's very difficult to see the big picture. And so I think to have works like Murray's book and Sebastian's book coming out at this time, I think it's a huge boost to our perception as Southeast Asian as people work on Southeast Asia. So, and I think this is something that we should encourage more really in among academic researchers to kind of branch out a bit and not be limited to our own nation that we focus on. And I think it's really good that, the, that your institution, Duncan, is like branching out in here and encouraging more conversation about this. Yes, I only would like to sing praise at this point. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better myself. This is really the point here. I am very interested in getting academics to think about why it is that they're not writing the books that we actually need about Southeast Asia. (laughs) And it's people with journalistic backgrounds who are writing those books instead. And we may feel, well, we academics are floating above that, but we're floating so high above it and nobody's really doing it. And I think academics need to come more down to earth and also think more comparatively. We talk a lot about global Asias and all these notions of cross-cutting Asia and inter-Asia, this and that, but there aren't many people who are really doing it in the way that these two books actually do it. And that's why they're so interesting and why we thought it would be great to have this discussion today. So thanks so much, Murray, Wasana, Petra, for being here today. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.